Hello. You've reached Hoop and Holler, a Square One podcast on basketball and other shenanigans. Danny Green, I'm mad at Danny Green. I just want to thank everybody that's been in my corner during this time. With Reagan Griffin Jr. Reagan, you're the best, man. I'm the clamp guy. I am the Giannis Antetokounmpo Whoa. of Lion Center. Eddie Sun. Probably won't get hired by, you know, ESPN anytime soon. Because <laughs> we don't got that clutch connection. And Julio Martinez. On uh, Giannis and the Bucks, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Please clap. It comes from at underscore underscore uh, KLU2 on Twitter. Bro, the fact that you knew there were two underscores before the to at underscore underscore KLU. He knows your that, Twitter. That means I'm tweeting it too much. But at, when it boils down, like, that's what we're here for is the yeah. basketball. Hoop and holler, you already know what the hell going on, man. Welcome to another episode. We're talking about the NBA Finals. It's on our hands, ladies and gentlemen, and it kind of sucks. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, it's been fun at times, but it hurts me a lot to watch what Giannis is going through currently. I just want to start there because I want to start with you, Julio, because I know you've had some things to say about Giannis in the past. What have you observed of his performance and of the performance of the team around him, particularly the yep. people that were supposed to be his supporting cast. Yeah, so I, I was hoping to kind of attack this specifically. So on the point with Giannis, especially in game two, uh, not, not that I give players, you know, um, a total pass when they're uh, coming back from injury if they don't if they don't play amazing, especially when you're a superstar. But I kind of give him a pass for, for game one. First of all, I didn't expect him to play until maybe game three. They say with a hyperextension like that, that the minimum timetable for return is 10 to 14 days. Um, so just under to uh, two weeks to two weeks. So I really didn't expect him to play at all. Oh, at, at least the first two games. And for him to come back out like that and uh, make some of the plays that he did and, and play as hard as he did in game one, you know, he, he played well enough uh, uh, or, or as well for a guy that, you know, anyone could have played in a situation like that. As for game two, he played amazing. Uh, I, I don't want to call it a perfect game, but in my eyes, for a guy like Giannis, how I view him, he played a perfect game. And that's because I don't expect him. Again, this is how I view and my perspective on Giannis. He's not a closer. He's not, you know, your superstar go get a bucket guy. He's not, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna give it to him when we need a, a, a push on on the offensive end when when we're falling behind and we need a spark. He's not that dude, especially late in games. But what I do expect from him is for him to dominate the paint inside. And I'm gonna keep saying this: be modern day Shaq and he's not 100% healthy so for him to drop 40 or 42 whatever it was I mean he played essentially a perfect game and something that you know even though I don't love him shooting something that he needs to add to his bag and that he has added uh, uh, kind of slowly I want to say is it's not a mid-range jump shot but it's like a somewhere between mid-range and and uh, the basket where it's it's a, maybe a little bit of a fall away, but it's easier for him because he's so damn tall. It's like so a post, damn... a post fadeaway. Is that what you're yeah. About? Yeah. 
Kind of, but not not. I, I hate using the word fade away because you know people think of like Kobe actually fading away. It's not a traditional fade away as much of it as it, it is a, a kind of a lean lean back shot. Mm-hmm. And he's so tall that defenders can't really get in his face. So I mean, other than that, Giannis played a perfect game. All that that loss was not because of him. Zero is on him. It's his teammates. You know, everybody. I sent you guys on Instagram this Chris Middleton cycle. You know, I, I'm wondering if I can bring it up. But it's like he plays well, then people start to, you know, kind of say he's the best player on the Bucks. Then every, then he plays badly. People start underrating him, and then he plays well. So he goes through this cycle, and it's so frustrating, especially when you need him to be your consistent scorer and closer. So that was missing yesterday. And it's not only on him, it's on Drew Holiday, too. So, again, I'm going to keep harping on this. What they truly need is a Damian Lillard-type go-get-a-bucket guard that can lead a team on the offensive end and who's not afraid to be aggressive and who's consistent. What they're missing is consistency on offense. Um, and, you know, but on Giannis, he played a perfect game in miles. Eddie, Chris Middleton is your guy, obviously. We, we've been on this since before we even started a podcast. The my first impression of you was this guy likes Chris Middleton a bit too much, and that was years ago. But here we are, you know, what are we now, 20? I met you when I was 17, three years down the, three years down the road, right? Chris Middleton's playing in the NBA Finals, and it's not looking pretty. Do you have anything well, to I say would, in defense of I would say not looking pretty is, uh, well, I mean, because let's be honest, in game one, you know, like he got his points, like he got his buckets, he got he got his shots off, and then I think in game two, he was kind of outcasted from the offense because I think Drew Holiday, you know, was trying to be aggressive or at least be more assertive than he was in game one, and you know, just just the way that they play, uh, like Drew Holiday kind of is like, you know, like he, he, he kind of dominates the offense when he wants to find a rhythm, and the same thing with Chris Middleton at times. Um, that it, it's hard for them to coexist at times, especially when Giannis also, you know, is, is taking touches up. Uh, but that being said, obviously, Chris Middleton needs to play better. And I think he will, you know, once again, when he steps on the home court. Um, and I, I really don't think, like, Chris Middleton has been that much of a problem because the truth is, you know, like that, that's kind of what you expect from Chris Middleton. Like, even when I, like, hyped him up to be, like, this this super underrated player, like, really good player... Like, I don't think he's, you know, Kevin Durant, right? Like, I don't think he's, um, uh, I don't know, what's another prolific score? Well, I mean, point is, Jason I don't think Tatum. he's Kevin Durant. Like, he's not he's not that type of win score. He's not even, like, Bradley Beal, maybe. But, you know, what, what he will get you is he's a guy that has infinite amount of moves, right, in his bag. He can create his shot at any time. He's also a really good defender. And when he misses, you know, he misses front rim. The ball goes in and out. It hits back rim, right? Like, those are just really right like like they're just bad misses but i don't think i've ever seen him out of his comfort zone so like you can't really say that he has looked out of place and and that and that's the worry for me like when a player makes or misses shots well guess what it's a make or miss lead. the thing i'm more worried about is when you have a player like drew holiday who looks completely out of rhythm right completely out of his element like it doesn't feel like he knows how to balance his touches and facilitating for others it feels like He's driving into the paint when there's three guys there and turning the ball over. But when he has Devin Booker on him 
on defense and there's no DeAndre Ayton in the paint, he's settling for jumpers. You know, so a guy like Drew Holiday was completely out of rhythm, completely out of whack. But when I see a player like Middleton, who, you know, like I said, he's just he's just making and missing shots and he's missing more than he's making right now. You know, like unfortunately for a player that is, you know, very good but not a star, that is to be expected. But you can only ask him to keep shooting and keep playing like he has been playing. The, the thing about Chris Middleton, though, is if if your team, your coach, whoever, is looking at you to be the primary scorer on your team, you got to take that mantle and not only expect the ball to come to you, you got to demand the ball. And nowhere near uh, uh, in that game yesterday, in game two, did I ever see him really truly demand the ball when the game was getting when they were down 13 and then they were down five, they were down four, and then they were back down 13, 14 points. So that that's when the, when the game is very close, that's when you have to demand the ball and you have to be super aggressive. And I, the only person that I saw being aggressive was Giannis. He was not scared. He was not scared at all. He was saying, like, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. And obviously that's not, it's not a great solution. So Chris Middleton has to be that guy to uh, – demand that ball and bud has to be able to as a coach either tell chris to demand the ball or to give it to chris and tell his team like hey call the timeout i don't care what it is tell your team like this is what we're gonna do it's just not you know free playing offense just give it to Giannis, and i'm over here crossing my arms on my big belly so it's like it's like come on bro come on they look lost whenever the game is close um, and if it's not Giannis, it's like, who is it if Chris Middleton isn't hot? So that, that's not a good offensive strategy to have late in game. So for, for me, I mean, I'm almost looking at it from the standpoint of, of through the lens of somebody who's been a supporter of Giannis Antetokounmpo since, she's 2015. I want to say that was, that was the year Jason Cade was their head coach, right? I feel like that was the year I really got put on to um, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And... Like, you, you just can't ask any more. And I think you said this, Willie. You can't ask any more of what he's done thus far. You can't... Anything beyond the extent to which he's gone, especially given his knee injury, is putting him so far out of his element that it's almost unfair to ask him to do any more scoring, any more creation, any more management of the offense. We've seen the areas in which he's flawed, and he's gotten better to an extent. I don't think... There's any point where I've watching uh, the game last night or even the game before that where it was Giannis is at on the court at his team's detriment right now. He's hurting his team with his play, with his presence. I haven't seen that from Giannis throughout this entire series since he's come back from his injury, um, which is promising, right? It, it helps me feel good as a Giannis fan to say, you know what, at least the narrative will never be this is Giannis's fault. But in the same vein, I want to see him and his team have success because they've come so far. I don't have a horse in the race. Like, I, I could just be equally satisfied with the Suns winning the series as I am with the Bucks. But what I don't want to see is a bad series. And the reason that it's a bad series right now, it's hard to say that it's not the fault of both Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. Now, I get it. Chris Middleton is taking the shots that he would normally take. And, yeah, it's a make-or-miss league at the end of the day. But, like... To chalk it up to just that, I feel like is, like, 
you got to put the ball, you have to put the ball in the bucket. It's it, that that's the objective of the game. And if you're not doing it at the most crucial moment of the season, then yeah, you're gonna have to catch some flack for it. Even though you're doing a lot of the same things that you would normally do if you're Chris Middleton, I agree with you. Drew Holiday's looks substantially worse. Drew Holiday's, you know, I saw a graphic that was basically equating him to Eric Bledsoe. Like, I think to an extent we all had this vision of Drew Holiday and what he could be in our heads, and that kind of never came to fruition. One thing I feel like might not have been addressed as much as, you know, Drew Holiday has not been in these moments like that. Drew Holiday hasn't stepped into a whole lot of NBA playoff environments, let alone NBA Finals environments. Could the moment be getting to the dude? I'm not a psychologist. I don't know, but I do know that's not the Drew Holiday that I expected to see in the series. That's what becomes frustrating for me is because you want to see a good series. You know that the opposition, the opposing team has good players. The only variable that everyone had going into this series was, well, is Giannis going to be good? If Giannis can be good, then this is going to be a damn good series to watch. Giannis is here. But the two, you know, all-star and borderline all-star players that he has with him are, are nowhere to be seen. So, yeah, that that's it's not a good look. I think you're on mute, Julio. My my only thing with Chris Middleton is that maybe he shouldn't catch as much flack as even I'm, you know, putting on him because if I'm going to view Giannis through this lens that I believe he is, and, and, you know, it's not that he's not a superstar per se, but he's, he's not that guy everybody, you know, claims him or wants him to be, and he never will because it's just not his game. And just like you said. I mean, he's quite he's, literally not built for it. Like, you, his, even yeah. his physical body type, he's not built to do a lot of those things that people want him to do. Yeah, so when it comes to Chris Middleton, I've been saying, and I know in my mind, that He's just this very, very inconsistent guy. He can drop 40 on your team. He can also drop 12 on on your team on any given night. And, yes, he does take a lot of the same shots, Paul George, uh, KD, uh, Kawhi, just mid-range shots, you know, off the dribble. But he's just way less consistent with it than, than those guys are. So if you look at him and – through that lens and accept him for what he is, then, you know, you should come to expect this and shouldn't be disappointing or disappointed in in his performances. Because when you operate from that perspective, you know what you're going to get from him. You know that, you know, in in a given seven game, six game series, he's going to have three good ones or two good ones, maybe a great one. And just three very, very subpar, maybe four, four subpar games where it's like, Where'd you go? Why'd you disappear? So that that's why the Milwaukee Bucks should not be content with this team. And obviously, we'll get to that more in the offseason. But um, they, they need to look elsewhere to find that scoring, that hole. Yeah. I would also just push back against the idea that this has been, like, a bad series. I think it's been really close. Like, I know the, the end games, both games were, like, 10-point games. But I, I really feel like both teams are – you know, throwing like a lot of different chess matches out there, you know, going through a lot of different game plans. And e- even though the score at the end, you know, it, there's kind of a separation, I feel like these teams are playing like really, really, really close. And if Milwaukee ever kind of could make the game like a one possession game instead of getting it to like a five point game and then having Phoenix, you know, always counter with some sort of run, it would really be like it would really be a series. And I think the difference maker, and I, I mean, I'm predicting this for games three and four, 
is home court advantage and mm-hmm. that you'll see some of the you know things that Phoenix did the first two games like shoot the ball at a uh, 50 or shoot the three at the 50 percent clip like they did in game two it won't be like that you know when they play on the road or you know certain things like getting 19 free throws to you know Milwaukee's two I don't think that will happen you know once you go to Milwaukee and so I, I mean there's been a lot of takes where people think Phoenix is just flat out the better team and they are in a lot of aspects they have better shot makers better IQ players you know their, their wing players are more disciplined and overall, their game plan discipline is really, really good. But I think that Milwaukee has more than enough personnel to match what Phoenix does. And, you know, if they can ever just iron out like a few kinks here and there going forward, and I feel like they can, I mean, I think that this is going to be a really good series. And, and, and I think the reason you say that is because uh, it's something that I mentioned a few pods ago that. Today's today's game is so different. You know, I, I remember just um, being even even in like the Miami Heat years, or especially in the in the Kobe era uh, when he won those uh, two championships. That you know, if a team got down by 13, 12, 13, 14, 15 points, and there were only four minutes remaining, it's over. You, you know, the the game is over. Nowadays, shoot. You saw it. You saw it in game two. The Bucks were down, I think, thirteen points, and they brought it all the way back within four, within like a given minute, minute and a half, and just in, in the blink of an eye. And what lost him the game was it, it was two or three possessions where the Suns got like four, three, four offensive rebounds, and you know the Bucks uh, just just couldn't rebound, and you know that was due to their lack of size, Giannis. He's the biggest guy out there laying games, and he was out on the perimeter, and they couldn't rebound. And th- the problem with that is that they need to play kind of small to keep up with Phoenix, especially with how fast they play. But if you play small like that, you're giving up lots and lots of rebound. So they were there. They were close. And I-, I will accept the idea that that game was closer than the score would kind of give them credit for. But the issue goes much broader than, than, hey, we're close. Because if you just depend on that and, and play a close game, who, who are you taking? Devin Booker or Giannis? I mean, Chris Paul or Chris Middleton? No, like that, that's, no, that, that, that's facts, but. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to game plan for, you know, a blowout, essentially. Not to say that you are going to blow out the Phoenix Suns, but that's really maybe not the only way you win. But that's the only way to give yourself a, 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 like a real good shot. Riddle me this, y'all, because in, in watching the games, and I think we talked about this at the end of last season, too, when the Lakers were playing the Heat in the finals. Like, yeah, there were moments where Miami was putting together some really good games and some really good stretches and some moments where they were really pushing back against the Lakers, but it never felt like it was an uncertainty for the Lakers. And in watching this series, it never really feels like there's a level of uncertainty that Phoenix can't won't win the game at the at least for the first two games it's always felt like they've had this level of assuredness they've had this level of confidence they've had this level of control over the of over the terms of engagement of the series that even when Milwaukee's in those moments and he's pushing back and Giannis is dropping 20 and a quarter right even in those moments it still feels like it's Phoenix's Phoenix's game and that it's just an inevitability that you know when the clock hits double zeros it's going to be Phoenix that's had the game at the end of the day. Yeah, Milwaukee's put together some good games, but I'm not sure that 
you know, if I'm sitting in the shoes of Phoenix, I felt particularly threatened at this point in time. Maybe I'm missing something, but it, it feels like, yeah, you're, you're fighting back, but, you know, they, they, they've never not been in control of the, of the situation, which is a Definitely. testament to Phoenix. I guess I definitely wouldn't say it's like a Lakers Heat thing where I think any fan watching could easily say the Lakers are clearly the better team. They have the better players. Like Miami might, you know, pull off a game off of competitiveness or two like they did, but there's just no way that they were gonna out compete or just like outplay the Lakers. But I don't I don't feel this way about this series. And maybe I don't, I'm, I'm not I'm saying like, I feel that way about the series. What I'm saying is, like, from watching the games, that's the aura of that the games have given me. Overall, from the series, like, I, hell yeah, Milwaukee should be able to challenge Phoenix. Um, but it just doesn't, the games have not proven that. The games have not shown me that, that they have the sort of energy that would provide the uncertainty that you want to see in an NBA Finals. Like, it's, it's never felt like the Suns, and perhaps this is just a testament to the level-headedness that they've had but they've never looked uncomposed they've never looked threatened whereas milwaukee has had these moments where they've looked completely out of sorts and that's kind of been the case throughout a lot of the playoffs but yeah like it it just doesn't seem like they have the level of composure that you want to see from a team to potentially win the finals i also i also think that about the suns they're kind of like a a modernish reincarnation of like the spurs teams with you know tony parker and, and tim duncan like the way they play the, the the sort of you know fundamental passing like really simple advantage creation um you know whatever like team team dynamic when you talk about you know the sort of players like chris paul and and you know a devin booker and then deandre ayton has like the most simplified role you know for for a big man and he dominates in it i really think you know when you see phoenix they play like the spurs really and that's kind of why you probably say like, oh, you know, Milwaukee looks extremely uncomposed when compared to Phoenix. Well, that's because Phoenix is like one of the more composed teams we've seen, you know, championship teams we've seen since those first teams. So obviously there's going to be a huge separation when you watch these two teams. And that's part of the reason why Phoenix has been really good in the first two games. You know, the, the sort of high IQ, you know, like players that they have will, will ultimately really separate them in these championship moments. But I also think that when I watched the games, it felt like Milwaukee was always one shot away from making it a game, from making it like, you know, uh, 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 go down to like a buzzer beater situation. Because, I mean, like I said, they always got it close and then Phoenix would always have a counter. But if Milwaukee did hit that shot to make it a one possession game, I think we're in a whole different territory now. Like, we, we really see the game in a different light. But just in the first two games, we've come to expect Every time Milwaukee has a run, Phoenix, you know, like for something like Chris Paul will hit like a midi or, or a three and then, you know, like Mikhail Bridges will do something and then all of a sudden it's a double-digit game. And so at least when I watch it, and again, I could be biased because I, I like I want Milwaukee to win this series. Like I like the Milwaukee team. Like Phoenix has just been annoying me more and more. Um, I like I feel like Milwaukee's almost there. Like they're really, really close. And and that's why to me I feel like it's it's you know it's, it feels like closer games than it has been. I really want Milwaukee to pull this out too. I I would I would not like it if the Suns win the series. But hey, whatever. Um, so the biggest issue with Milwaukee, in my opinion, is that you can't just just because game two was close, you can't just expect. And this goes to adjustments that need to be made by the head coach. Um, and willingly, not, not you know, adversely. Um, 
is you, you can't just expect these games like, hey, we had it in game two. If we just got a rebound, got a, got a you know, made a three, got another stop, and perhaps got another bucket, the game would have been tied. You can't depend your series and your games on that. So you need to change strategy. And in game one, I remember it's – I can't believe, you know, Coach Bud would do this because you literally saw it in the Denver Nuggets and Phoenix Sun series. Why the hell would you play drop coverage? Why the hell would you play drop coverage on, on Chris Paul? Not to say that he's going to have and mirror those games that he had um, that where he was dropping like crazy amount of points. But if you give an NBA player free open you know ways to drive and get in get in the mid range and shoot a little midi that you know that you know that's Devin Booker's and Chris Paul's bread and butter, you're gonna lose the freaking game, bro. You're gonna lose the game, and you saw it not work. So why would you try to implement that with your team and your defensive strategy? So what you need to do with Chris Paul and this, and especially Devin Booker is a little bit of what the uh, kind of Cavs did to, to Steph. They would, like, bull rush him on, 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 on screens. And by bull rushing him, you, you made him pass it uh, to a teammate, to Draymond or whatever. And the thing about the Warriors is that Draymond is a very good playmaker when he gets the ball at the, at the top of the key. And not to say the Suns don't have good passers, because they do, but you have to put them a, a little bit on their heels where they have to play reactive to your defense, not make you react. Because mm-hmm. if they make you react, that's when you get the wide open threes. That's when you get Chris Paul saucing up uh, uh, Brooke Lopez and then getting a wide open corner three for Bridges, a top of the key three for Jay Crowder, because you have to help so much because you don't want to give open shots to, to Chris Paul. At least when you bull rush it, uh, the, the screen, you make them pass, and, and they have to pass around the perimeter, and maybe it's a rushed shot. Well, and, it, and it's not going to be in the hands of Devin Booker and Chris Paul where they're comfortable. So th- that's that's where you have to get the pieces on their offense moving because Bridges is a good three-point shooter when he's set. Not when he, not, he's not a great three-point shooter when he's moving. Same thing with Jay Crowder. He, he, and he's a very streaky dude. So if you make the threes a little bit harder than expected and drag DeAndre Aiden out a little bit, and that, that's, that's also the other strategy. You can, after he sets a screen, you cannot let him just easily roll to the paint. Now, he's really good at that, though. He knows when to roll. He knows when to roll. He knows when yeah. to roll. Yeah, so, so if I'm a guard, if I'm guarding CP3 and I'm getting screened by DeAndre Aiden, I know, like, obviously I want to get back to Chris Paul to guarding him because I don't want Brooke Lopez on him. But I know that DeAndre Aiden's going to roll. So if if you can – and not, Chris Paul is a good three-point shooter, but if that's how you're going to beat me, fine. So I would maybe even – after trying to bull rush the screen, I would maybe even try to go under to push DeAndre uh, Aiden out of the paint because I know he's going to roll. But my point is you have to make him uncomfortable and not let him just willingly so easily – uh, uh, roll to the paint. So there's different defensive strategies and tactics that you have to do and, and throw out to, to, you know, Phoenix's offense. You can't just play the same way every time, and Bud ha- has to make those adjustments. But what Bud clearly wants to hold on to is the idea of Brooke Lopez being involved in his offense. And the only way you can 
let Brooke Lopez be on the court is if you put him in those drop coverage situations because you're not going to switch him and put him on an island with a guy like Chris Paul, um, which begs the question, is it perhaps you know fruitful? And P.J. Tucker has not been great, right? But if you want to go away from playing that drop coverage, your only other options are to hedge and recover or to switch, right? And you can't switch with Brooke Lopez, so you're going to have to put a Bobby Portis out there, a P.J. Tucker out there, and run smaller, which now you run the risk of DeAndre Ayton killing you, which it just goes to show like this, the balance of the, this Phoenix Suns team has in so many ways that they can kill you. But I agree. Dropping against a guy like Chris Paul, I mean, even Cam, uh, uh, not Cam Johnson, doggone Cameron Payne. Like, he's played really, really well. I don't feel comfortable dropping against a guy like that and allowing him to kind of have his way because he's making really smart decisions out there. So... Um, yeah, I mean, you probably want to start switching those and, and making it, like you said, initiating. I mean, they talk about it in football all the time. Just because you are, you know, the the person, the recipient of the action doesn't mean that you can't be the initiator and try to dictate what's going on. And that's what you have to start doing as a defense because this team is just too experienced, too composed. You're looking at Chris Paul, top five point guard of all time. Jay Crowder, only player on the court that's been in the finals before. Devin Booker, you're not moving that dude off his balance. Mike McCall Bridges, I mean, I, I mean, he's just impressed me in general. And DeAndre Aydins has his ebbs and flows, but he's looked really good throughout these entire playoffs. This team's too composed to just allow them to go out there and do what they want to do. You have to, like you said, put them on their heels, throw them off balance, show them something different because if they're just, you know, going out there and saying, okay, give me my time, they'll take it and they'll kill you with it. Uh, Some of the smartest defensive strategies, or at, at least from me being, you know, a former player, is you have to, you just have to know the scouting report. And by knowing the scouting report, you know who to bait. So I always talking about, uh, I'm always talking about, you, you know, when you're playing the Bucks, you always want to bait Giannis. You, you want to bait Giannis into shots that, you know, you know that he's not going to be consistent in. So who do you want to bait on this Suns team to be aggressive? And, uh, you know, if they kill you, so be it. As much as I like him, probably Jay Crowder. It's going to be Jay Crowder. It's going to be Mikael Bridges. And it's going to be Cam, Cam Johnson can, can play off the ball or off the dribble. But those two guys that I mentioned, oh, and, and the third guy, DeAndre Aiden when he's not close to the rim. Mm-hmm. So th- those are the three guys, the three scenarios that you want to bait. And how do you bait them? You bait them by kind of, it's called like fake helping, where you don't, it's not that you're helping off off of those guys to let them shoot open threes, but you're making them think that they're going to be open. You're making them, you're making Devin Booker and Chris Paul think that you're going to help, but really, you, you know, you're just baiting for them to get the shot and you have to close out hard and you make them put the ball on the ground. You make them put the ball on the ground or do a fake sidestep step back from three. That that's the, that's going to be your best defensive strategy. Um, to make them put the ball on the ground and, and just do extra stuff where they're not wide open shooting, you know, open threes. And then the other thing is DeAndre Aiden, this is what I'm talking about, not letting him get in the paint and pushing him out where if he gets the ball at the elbow, and I know he can he can make those shots. He, he's really, really capable of that. But you'd rather have him dunking and getting alley-oops or shooting, you know, turn around fadeaways. And sometimes he falls into those traps. But Monty Williams has obviously been good at telling him to play in his role, and he, he's looked happy. But you get him, you get those three baited into those types of situations, that's a way better defensive strategy than, 
what they're playing right now. See, I agree with the, both of you that you have to get Phoenix out of their element a little bit and push them out of their comfort zone. Like, uh, Hulu, you bring up the, the Steph thing, you know, right, with, with uh, playing the Cavs. They run a lot of off-ball actions for Devin Booker to initiate his offense. Like, it's not really off-ball actions for a shot. It's just running him through, like, two like two drag screens, right, to get him the ball at the top of the key. Like, what, what the Cavs were so good at, you know, doing his stuff all those years was just literally, right, shoving him, grabbing his jersey, whatever, right, like, punching him a little bit. It's like, you just have to be a little bit physical, right, like, play physical defense. I know Reagan hates this. It's but, like, unfortunately, in the finals... And, I mean, I hated it when they did it to Steph all those years, too, because there was definitely, like, you know, 50 fouls there. But, I mean, if, it, if they allow it in the course of the game, like, you have to, right, like, just disrupt their rhythm a little bit. Like, I, and the thing is, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are such tempo players that if you do just little things to get them off their tempo, um, I think you, you, you can really disrupt them for sure. But I will disagree with you two that drop, like, the, the idea that drop defense is not playable uh, in this series against Chris Paul and Devin Booker, because I think it's Milwaukee's best option, and at times, it looked, like, really good. In uh, game one, it was, like, okay, but game two, I think, at, at times, it was really good, and even Brooke Lopez, for his athletic limitations, um, if you're if you're point of attack defender, especially Drew Holiday, or even, like, Pat Connaughton, like, if they can fight over screens well, and, and they can, like, to a certain degree, you know, and, and be on Chris Paul and Devin Booker's back. Brook Lopez, like, like, he will be there and disrupt the shot. And what you have to live with if you're Milwaukee, and I felt this way, you know, when they were playing Brooklyn, you just have to live with Chris Paul and Devin Booker, even though they're extremely good mid-range shooters. You have to live with them taking long twos as long as you make them tough. You, Chris, you have Chris to, Paul is nailing them. He, he does this like the, he, you're talking about the best mid-range you, shooter in the NBA. You have someone if you have someone on the back of Chris Paul and Devin Booker and Brook Lopez's or Giannis's hand up in the air contesting right in his face, I would rather have him take thirty of those shots throughout a game than helping off the corner and giving Mikhail Bridges a wide open three or uh, Cam Johnson a wide open three, uh, Jay Crowder a wide open three. I mean anyone campaign a wide open three. The thing is, like. I trust Milwaukee's defensive scheme, and, and they've done this since like Coach Bud has been there. Their drop defense scheme, as long as they're game, as long as they have game plan discipline to force you know their the uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker into tough middies. And I know they're really good at it, but like I know that they can force them into you know taking tough shots there, and and you know not just giving up threes. Because I mean, get, look how Phoenix won Game Two. I mean, a lot of people will say, okay, Devin Booker, like, was really good. Chris Paul was solid. But guess what? Phoenix made 20 of 43. You're just not going to win if your opposing team hits 23s. And a lot of them were wide open. And a lot of it was just not executing your game plan with discipline in my eyes. You just cannot help off corners. And, in, in, you know, I sent out a tweet. You can't help off corners in the year 2021 anymore. Everyone knows how to hit a corner three. And everyone hits them at a high enough clip where it's just not worth helping off the corners. Um, like, you have to, again, know your personnel. If Jay Crowder's in the corner and Tory Craig is on the wing, you know, you cannot drift from the corner to the wing, or or you have to help off the wing in Tory Craig and go to the corner and guard Jay Crowder and live with the wide, uh, live with the wide open Tory Craig three. It's just certain things like that, you know, like game plan discipline will be really important. And, um, I mean, also note, like, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are the type of players where, like, again, they're really talented shot makers, but look at how they get their shots. You know, it, it takes them like three, four, five dribbles 
you know, to, to settle into one of those middies. They never shoot straight up, right? They never shoot going forward. They always have to shoot going sideways or even with the momentum going a little backwards. That means that if you're the point of attack defender, you always have time to recover over screens and, you know, get back in a good defensive position in front of them. So again, if, you know, if I'm Milwaukee, you just have to say you live with Brooke Lopez being out there because he has been like pretty solid throughout the entire playoffs and even in this series. And you just have to trust your point of attack defenders to be in the right place and force, again, CP3 and Booker into tough mid-range shots. And then, you know, like, I think defensively, like, you can absolutely live with that and then hope you improve on offense. Hmm. But I don't know. I could be, I mean, it seems like Twitter and everyone loves to roast, you know, Brooke Lopez and whatever. But Brooke Lopez has been really good this entire playoff run. And, you know, bigs like him, like, when they get exposed, they get exposed badly. But, you know, unfortunately, that's just to be expected. But for the most part, he has been really solid. And I think, you know, like, I mean, I get you don't want to be killed, right? Like, you don't want to be killed if you have to switch or whatever. But the truth is, that option has looked better than the small ball uh, Milwaukee has thrown out there, which has gotten killed on the glass. And, and, you know, they don't really quite have the versatility to switch comfortably when they go with the small five. Yeah, I mean, so going off of uh, this kind of mid-range discussion, I just want to say that, and I always bring this up, man, if 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 the Phoenix Suns weren't, like, uh, the players that they have, because I'm not a big fan of really the the players that they have, like, just the personalities, but I love Devin huge, Booker. But, I, but I'm a huge fan of their, of the way that they play basketball as a team, and individually many of those players. Um, so it's just a team that, you know, I love to root against. And what I think they do beautifully is not only the, what I mentioned, I think a few pods ago, where everybody knows their role. Chris Paul, he's a veteran. Uh, Devin Booker, he's probably the best player in the score you, you, that you go to playing games. DeAndre Aiden, he's a big man. He plays like a big, like a modern day big man should and, you know, he doesn't really complain. You don't see him complaining about it. He plays within his role. And you have a bunch of great uh, uh, wing role players. And um, But what I think they do so well, why they're such, like, a perfect kind of team is they mesh, like, the new era of basketball and the old kind of old-school way of playing basketball so, you know, so perfectly. And that's all credit to Monty Williams. Um, not only kind of like the when I say old school, I mean two things. I mean kind of like the mid range and letting his players kind of cook and, and shoot the open shots that you have. I don't care if it's mid range. I don't care if it's a layup. I don't care if it's at three. You're gonna shoot whatever shot is open. Not you know we're not trying to be you know Mike D'Antoni out here. Um, and then the the second thing um, is something that Eddie mentioned is there's a lot of actions that he runs to get his, even his best players with Devin Booker open and get him, you know, going to his right, uh, dribbling to his right, fade away from, from the elbow, or going to his left to, to get his defender on his back and then step back left elbow. So he, he runs a lot of actions like an old school coach would. He lets his players shoot in the mid range like an old school coach would, yet they can still kill you from three. So they, they, they mesh the old era of basketball and the new era of basketball so perfectly. And this is why I, I, I just, it really cracks me up when, when people 
and just I, I don't know just can't they think that the mid range is dead it's useless or it's like it's it can be weaponized so heavily that I, I just don't think teams taking take advantage of that enough. Hmm. I've been seeing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, Go ahead. I was just gonna say like echoing like they're the Spurs right like. They're, they're the Spurs and, and the ball movement and the people movement and the fundamentals, the execution, except they do everything initiating from the three-point line instead of, you know, from the mid-range or from the post. It's, I mean, I think Julio described it perfectly. It's definitely, you know, old-school fundamentals or just really just fundamentals that has existed for, you know, decades and years, but now put in a modern context. Y'all remember that time Monty Williams just didn't want to coach the Lakers? That was fun. But, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I'm inclined to agree with the both of you on, I mean, just Monty Williams in general, man. He's not only a great X's and O's guy, but he's also great personally in terms of how he engages his players. I think there was one video floating around Twitter where it was kind of him talking to DeAndre Ayton and one of the more impactful things that he said. I mean, just the way he was talking to him, just, you know, not yelling at him, just getting his point across, making sure he was heard. Firmly, but not you know, not aggressively, but just not in a way that was going to be making him feel bad or chastising or anything like that. But what he was saying was also really important. Is like, yo, go be a great player. I know you're down because you hold yourself to such a high standard. Go play to that high standard. But that doesn't just manifest itself in the stat sheet. It's not just getting your numbers, but it's also you know, go just impose yourself and impose your role in that defense. Like you were saying, Julio, he has a very strong sense of getting guys to fit into their roles and do what it is that they can figure out what it is and, and shine in the ways that they can really help the team. DeAndre Ayton didn't have the most points last night. It wasn't another one of those 20 and 20 games, but he was still felt, you know? Um, and I think that's something that's really important. Um, and honestly, like looking back on it in hindsight, you know, he probably wouldn't have wanted to coach the Lakers because he would have been dealing with a whole lot of dudes who perhaps don't want to do that. I can't imagine him coaching Andre Andre Drummond, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe he oh could get the God. absolute best out of Andre Drummond. Who knows? You know, Who knows? You but know what? You know what? Reagan asked just for anybody that's listening. Maybe we can partake this part to the beginning of the show. He asked us: uh, Is there anything funny going on in the NBA right now that we can kind of talk about and intro the show on uh, on a light note? And it just came to me. Andre Drummond and Kyle Kuzma. Andre Drummond thinks he's goddamn Will Chamberlain, and Kyle Kuzma, and Kyle Kuzma thinks he's Kawhi Leonard. No, Andre Drummond did say he came out and said like he would have loved to play in like the '90s or the '80s or something because no, he likes to fight. See, he started selling Kareem Abdul Drummond yeah, shirts. Kareem Abdul Drummond shirts, and and the thing, and so. The, I want to touch on Kuzma really fast. So he's had two kind of uh, uh, kind of instances this offseason where, you know, and look, I'm not trying to, uh, what Rob Parker would say, poo-poo on somebody that, you know, believes in, their, in themselves because, you know, these dudes are NBA players, you know, they're living their dreams and stuff. But within the NBA context, Kyle Kuzma really said at the beginning of this offseason for the Lakers that, hey, Kawhi Leonard, you know, as soon as he left the Spurs and really came out of his shell, he became the Kawhi Leonard that we know today. Did you just compare yourself to Kawhi Leonard? First of all, that's not true. Like, Kawhi Leonard was a bucket before he left the Spurs. He was a bucket. Even, yeah, it's not true. But even if so, like, you cannot look at yourself 
and think that you're anywhere near that caliber of player. And the, the comparisons are obviously made. He probably looks at himself um, as, hey, I can escape this situation and become kind of Brandon Ingram, that all-star for a team for uh, uh, and kind of be a building block, a true building block for a team, be that all-star, be that guy that, you know, our team looks to. And it's like, are you delusional? Like, let's let's be a little bit realistic here. You were averaging 19 points on a on maybe the one of the worst Lakers teams of all time. We don't like that. And and for him to be like, hey, I just want the opportunity. Vogel needs to play me more. Stop talking. Stop talking. You've had opportunity after opportunity. What we what the Lakers need is a scoring kind of wing uh, uh, or guard centric player who can go get their bucket. You couldn't fill that need. So shut the hell up. Oh wow. And then and then uh, and then Andre Drummond, bro. This, this, man, this man, he's actually like I I, I really don't know if he's because tro- I, I feel like he'd be trolling. I do. I, I think yeah. Andre Drummond be trolling. That's why. So I know Kuzma really believes in himself, and that's good for you. That mentality probably got you to the NBA. So, you know, kudos to you. But when it comes to Andre Drummond, I actually think he like he he loves to troll because there's no way that you think you're that good. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. You can average I mean, 20, 20, but I don't give it. I don't give it. Have you seen the way he plays though? Like maybe he does. Like he he's so bad where. I, it's just so frustrating. He really said, like, that's super, dis- that's actually very disrespectful to, to Frank Vogel. He said, tell y'all coach to play me more, and I'll dominate, like, Jokic and DeAndre Aiden. What? Have you seen Nikola Jokic play bad? I just want to know, like, first of all, how many minutes does he want feasibly? Because I'm pretty sure he played, like, at least 27, 28 a game. So what is, like, 33 going to make the difference? Like, those extra five minutes. And second of all, it's just like, I don't know, man. Like, I think I said it at the top of the season. This Lakers team just doesn't have the same aura about it that the original team is. Because you had dudes like Dwight who were just like, sign me up. Tell me where to go. Tell me whose shot I need to block. Tell me what ball I need to rebound, and I'm there. That's the issue with LeBron's team. And obviously, LeBron team, LeBron-led team is that, you know, you want veteran guys who are able to look in the – at themselves in the mirror and kind of be realistic and play within their roles and be happy. But when that happens, you get a lot of guys who are quote unquote old and get hurt a lot. And then the excuse for LeBron James teams is that, Hey, this team is old. They're always hurt. You know, they don't have a lot of young pieces who can play, you know, all 82 games and, you know, be healthy throughout the season and are springy. This, you know, LeBron's teams get tired and they get hurt. Um, and, you know, that, that's the kind of issue. So the Lakers have to find a middle ground. And we'll talk about it more uh, when we're really in the in the thick of things in the offseason. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm just excited for, you know, this team to kind of flip the switch and everybody get the hell out. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think... Sounds like an RDC World video. I think, I think Andre Drummond is just one of those players that really bases their... You know, basketball value off of the box for stats, and like I mean, we 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 we've seen that with you know, like Hassan Whiteside led the league in blocks two seasons ago, right? Like he had like three blocks per game, but he was literally just chasing every block and giving up every you know rebound opportunity that was available. So, I mean, I don't know. 
like his his self awareness could just be like not not very high. Yeah, and, and, it is pretty funny though. If if you want to, he seems like a type of dude who really would not mind spending his career. Uh, like he he wouldn't mind not winning a championship and, and just spending his career on a on an atrocious team, but building his legacy and averaging like maybe one year close to thirty and you know sixteen rebounds. Like he he would actually like that because he would view himself and, and regard himself as hey I was an NBA great delusional, but if that makes you happy, hey that makes you happy. There you go. That's all. That's all it's all about, man. So, yeah, we'll get into that in later episodes, man. I, I kind of want to do a series where we examine. I mean, I'm. This is probably something to pitch off the air, but fuck it. I want to do a series where we examine each of the teams that we believe could have a path to winning next year's championship, whether that's they already have a core that's capable of winning a championship, or you have the assets and means of building a core that could win a championship next season. I want to examine each of those teams and maybe bring on a guest, like a beat writer for that team or somebody that we know that's a fan of that team and kind of have a roundtable discussion about, okay, what does it look like for this team um, to put together a roster that gives them their best chance of winning a championship? I don't know how y'all feel about that. I don't know how y'all in the audience feel about that. Let us know. Maybe it's something that we do. and so Maybe it's something that we make a series in the offseason. But that'll do it for this episode. Oh, go ahead, Leo. In the off season, we can just attack a different team every episode because right. there's there's a few teams that I I would love to see make moves and uh, there, there's just a lot of potential there. Um, so I, I'm I'm very I'm actually very very excited. I'm not gonna reveal what my top one would be, but yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Hoop and Holler. As always, thank you guys so so much for tuning in. Uh, go follow the socials at Pod, Instagram and Twitter at Reagan underscore underscore or Reagan D Griffin on Twitter at Julio underscore no JT Martinez on Twitter and at is it just Eddie Sun on Twitter? It's underscore Eddie Sun. Underscore Eddie Sun on Twitter. All of that good stuff. Make sure you go hit us up, engage, follow all that nice stuff. We will see y'all next time. This has been the Hoop and Holler podcast.